0: Uh, You will be with us this morning, uh, that your word will be guiding us, that we would see you, Jesus, that we would see you for who you are, and that we would learn more about you, but not just head knowledge, Lord, that we would be um, understanding more about who you are and be encouraged uh, and strengthened uh, by you, Lord. Amen. Let me tell you a couple of stories about temptation. I've just made them up, but they might resonate with you. You got home after a long day at work. You're tired and a bit brain dead. You walk through the door, you can feel the tension in the air again. The kids are running around screaming. The house looks like a bomb went off. Your wife looks at you ragged and says and asks you if you've remembered to pick up the milk but you've forgotten. And now your wife is angry with you as well. You didn't mean to forget, but you're under a lot of stress at work. Your boss is handing you about the upcoming deadlines. You're at work early, you work through lunch to try and catch up, but you're still falling behind. You go to your office and you lock the door. You say you have a few quite a few emails to send. But it's really just to avoid everyone in the house. For once, you have a quiet moment and it comes down on you like a ton of bricks. You've been surrounded by people all day. You don't feel like any of them really know you or understand you or even care. They don't know that you've been feeling depressed all through COVID and that you feel incredibly lonely. You thought that being a Christian should be better than this. I'm supposed to be a beloved child of God, What sort of God treats his children like this? Why do I even bother? On top of that, you've been fighting what feels like a losing battle against porn. You feel guilty about it, but after a day like today, and feeling the way you feel, you can't be bothered fighting it. At least it brings some distraction and some stress relief. And so you open up your laptop. Story number two you're on break at work and you and your colleague head down to the bakery a few doors down to grab a sausage roll. In one of the storefronts on the way, they still have their Christmas decorations up and among them is a Jesus is the reason for the season poster. They point to the the poster and make some comment. They know you're a Christian but you haven't really had a conversation about the gospel with them before. You pluck up the courage, you say a quick prayer for help and you open your mouth, but their reaction catches you off guard. It is swift It is angry and it is brutal. Don't push that Jesus stuff on me. It's all made up. It's full of contradictions. The Bible is just a tool that bigots use to oppress people. You don't even follow everything it says. What about all those Old Testament laws? I know how much you like to eat prawns. You Christians just blame all your doubts on the devil. You refuse to think critically. Grow up. You're caught off guard and you don't know what to say. You mutter out a reply and the conversation awkwardly moves on. Later that day, you get home and your Bible is on your desk. You normally open it up and read, but today your colleagues' words are still ringing in your ears. And this morning, you read something that sounded so different from what the world around you believes. And you start to think maybe they were right. Can it all literally be true? There's heaps of stuff that I can't explain. Have I just turned my brain off? And so, rather than opening your Bible, you push it to the back of your desk and read something else instead. Story number three. Kids, it's summer and it's hot. Your dad enters the living room and announces that you can have ice creams, but you have to clean your room first. Your brain goes wild, wondering which flavor you'll have mint chocolate chip, vanilla with strawberry swirl. You rush to your room and your face drops. It is a mess. The bed isn't made, The dirty clothes scattered everywhere, a pile of clean clothes on the floor ready to be put away, a half-finished jigsaw puzzle, few books, soft toys, Lego. You can't help but think, this will take forever. You really want that ice cream, and you've decided you want one of those mango and macadamia ones. You look back at your room and you have an idea. You quickly throw the doona over the bed, covering the messy sheets and the pyjamas, You shove everything on the floor under the bed. Toys, books, clothes, all mixed together, forced under the bed. You can hear the sound of your Lego creation falling apart, but it doesn't matter. You want that ice cream. It only takes you a minute and you're done. You're ready for your cold treat. Maybe parts of these stories resonate with you. Perhaps not the details, but the feelings, the temptations... temptations sorry can't get that clicker please thank you there we go temptation is a test temptations to serve yourself temptations to doubt temptations to take shortcuts temptations to deny god's goodness and presence temptations that come in the form of desires that the bible tells us to keep under control Temptation is normal. It's a constant part of our Christian lives. It is something that every one of us faces, every day. If you don't think you face temptation a day, then check your pulse. Temptation is a normal part of the Christian life. And temptation, or testing, reveals what we're truly like. Like an exam at the end of a term is designed to reveal what you really know, temptation reveals our character, who we really are. When we're put under pressure, when we're under the pump, it becomes hard to keep the mask on. Cracks start to appear. And what we really think and what we really feel, who we truly are, starts to come out. And what does this temptation reveal about us? It shows us that none of us are up to the challenge. We don't have it in us to fight sin. You have been weighed and you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. You do not measure up to God's standards. We do not measure up to God's standards. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 At the heart of every temptation is a lie. We see that right at the very first temptation in the garden. Temptation is a lie about who God is and what he has said. Did God really say? Is that really what's best? Wouldn't you be better off doing this instead? At the heart of every temptation is a lie. And so sin is fundamentally doubting what God said and therefore acting against it. And if temptation is a test that reveals our character, then what it reveals is that we aren't up to the challenge of resisting the lie. We need the help Of someone who is. And it is for that reason that we see in our passage that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested by the devil. Last week we continued our study through the Gospel of Matthew and we saw again the theme that Jesus is king. Jesus is king by his birth line. Jesus is recognised and worshipped as King by the Magi. Jesus is the King who is the fulfilment of prophecy long ago. And last week, Jesus is declared King by both John the Baptist and, more importantly, God the Father himself. Diego covered chapter 3, and we were at Jesus' baptism, the King's coronation. John is a herald to the coming King, a voice in the wilderness prepare the way for the king. John was also preparing the people to repent and to be ready to receive their king. Jesus came to John to be baptised, not to repent, but to fulfil all righteousness. He is giving his whole life in obedience to God. Jesus, the true Israelite, is demonstrating to the people obedience to the Father, that we should follow his example, as well as giving a symbol of his coming death and resurrection. And when he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove and rests on him, and the voice of God speaks through the torn heavens. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. These words of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 should be coming to mind. Jesus is the king who will rule over God's kingdom. And he's the spirit-filled servant who will suffer and die so that God's people can be forgiven. And now the reason that Jesus had been equipped for his ministry by the Spirit, sorry, now that Jesus has been equipped for ministry by the Spirit, he's led out into the desert. And Matthew tells us the reason. The Spirit has led him out there to be tested by the devil. And so the big question that hangs in the air, if being tested reveals character, what will the testing reveal about the Son of God? Jesus' testing in the wilderness isn't just a distraction from God's plan for Jesus. It's a key step. This is the moment where the Son of God shows that he's come to do what no one else can, to withstand temptation. He needs to show that he won't turn aside from the word of God. He has come to fulfill all righteousness. Will he succeed? When Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry... Now, as always with the case with Matthew, there's more to see if you look clearly. And so when we read the words wilderness, tempting, and the number 40, what are we meant to think of? What do you think of? Actually, it says, what do you think of when you think of wilderness, tempting, and 40? The Exodus, the Exodus, exactly. We're meant to think of Israel's Experience wandering in the wilderness for 40 years after the exodus from Egypt. We're meant to think of Moses fasting for 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai before he's given the law of God. This is more than just one man doing what has never been done before. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is going through this testing as a reliving of the history of God's people. He's reenacting their story, he's succeeding where they failed. He's doing it as a representative of all of God's people. He is the true Israelite and the true human being. And he's doing it as their Messiah, their King. And that means that there are elements of this temptation that are unique to Jesus. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, and we are not. And so, it would be a mistake for us to read this passage and jump straight to ourselves and find three principles for resisting temptation because the entire point is that we can't. Jesus comes to do what we can't do ourselves. But don't despair, because if you are a Christian, the spirit who empowered Jesus' obedience now lives in you as well. And so we can learn from Jesus. Remember, at the heart of every temptation is a lie about God and what he says, so that we can see how Jesus resists the lie. First, let us see how Jesus does what no one else can. The Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness, and in verse 2 he tells us that after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus is tired, he's hungry, and he's alone. That's a lethal combination for when we're tempted, isn't it? Think about how hard it is to resist sin when you're hungry or when you have no one around to keep you accountable. Jesus hasn't just skipped lunch. He's been in the wilderness for more than a month. He is at the limits of human endurance. It's easy to focus on Jesus' divinity when we're thinking of his testing, like somehow the devil's temptations bounce off him like bullets bounce off Superman. But Matthew points us to Jesus' humanity. He is hungry. God doesn't get hungry. Humans get hungry. Jesus is going through this temptation with his full humanity engaged. There is never a time in his ministry when it's not. All the effects and emotions of 40 days of fasting are bearing down on Jesus. He's experiencing temptation at its sharpest point. And the devil knows that this is the perfect time to go on the attack. He comes to Jesus, and in this first test, he tempts Jesus to serve himself. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You're hungry, Jesus. It's been 40 days. Make yourself something to eat. You're the Son of God. You can do it. You've got the power. You don't need to be hungry and wait for the Father. There is no doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. The devil knows who he is. A voice from heaven has declared it. This isn't a case of making Jesus prove his identity. It's about Jesus and how he will use his identity. Will he use it to serve others or will he use it to serve himself? But bread in the wilderness isn't just a random temptation because the tempter knows Jesus is hungry. I hope you recognize it. Your radar should be turned on from the reference about testing in the wilderness. The devil is telling Jesus to make manna, the bread from heaven that God fed Israel with for 40 years. Jesus recognized it at once. This isn't a test about bread. It is about whether the Son of God will live a life shaped by the promises and the plans of God, or a life driven by his own self-preservation. Will he trust his father to provide everything he needs? Jesus replies with these words that explains the reasons for God's provision of manna. Reading from Deuteronomy chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you in these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord." God tested Israel with manna to see if they would trust his word. He promised to give them what they needed. Would they trust him and obey his words? Israel failed. But Jesus refuses to act in his own interests. His life and ministry would be shaped by his father's words. Jesus refuses to use his position to serve himself. He's committed to obeying the words of his father He's come to serve and to save us. That is it's test number one. Test number two, the devil changes tack. This time he tempts Jesus to put God to the test. All right, he says, if you want to live by the word of God, let's see what it says. He takes him to Jerusalem, the holy city, and stands up at the highest point of the temple. And said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil says to Jesus, I've got some scripture too, and he quotes from Psalm 91. It is a really interesting choice of Psalm to quote. You can ask me afterwards why if you're interested. But he tries to play this game with Jesus If you are God's son, prove it. The temple precinct would have been crowded with people. This isn't just an opportunity to prove... So, isn't this just an opportunity to prove that he is the Messiah? Don't the scriptures say that that God will protect his Messiah? He won't even stub his toe. Angels will swoop in and protect him. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have that sort of protection, your own guardian angel? Instead, Jesus has been out in the wilderness starving. He is hot. He is tired and hungry. God's son shouldn't be suffering like this. And the devil reckons he has a Bible verse to prove it. God says he's with you. He says he'll protect you. Make him prove it. And again, Israel's time in the wilderness is the background here. Jesus is reliving their experience. As soon as things got hard for them, they started asking is God really with us? We're hungry and we're in the desert, and, we're, and the land we're heading to is full of giants. Weren't we better off as slaves in Egypt? Has God brought us out here to kill us? Do you feel that temptation sometimes? Hang on. If I'm God's beloved child, then why am I hurting so much? Why am I lonely? Why am I depressed and anxious? Why is my family a mess? Is God really with me? And the devil acts on those doubts. It's his MO. It's the one he's been working with since the Garden of Eden. He takes God's words and he twists them. He makes it sound reasonable, sensible, even pious. We just want God to keep his promises. It can't be a bad thing to ask God to prove himself. Jesus isn't sucked in. Notice a couple of things about how Jesus reads the scriptures. We can learn from him. The phrase, never read a Bible verse, rings true. And here is a great example. First, Jesus knows the context of Psalm 91. It isn't a psalm that says nothing bad will ever happen to the Son of God, or that nothing will, bad will ever happen to God's people but it says that God will be with them in their trouble. Jesus refuses to take this verse out of context and use it to say something that it doesn't mean. Jesus reads in context, and so should we. And second, he won't allow an interpretation of Scripture that would lead to a contradiction. Sure, if you rip verses 11 and 12 out of Psalm 91, you can make them say that nothing bad will ever happen to Jesus... But Jesus won't use it that way. That means he would disobey another part of Scripture. Do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Instead of forcing the issue of divine protection, Jesus entrusts himself to his Father's plan. He knows his Father is always with him because he said he would be. And that's true even in the hardest times. He refuses to put God to the test. His role is to live by God's agenda, not to expect the Father to conform to his. Test number three. The devil tempts Jesus to save himself. This time he takes Jesus to a very high mountain, and from that mountain he shows him a vision of all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. The great philosophy and learning of the Greeks, the might and power of Rome, the global reach of the British Commonwealth, the natural beauty of Australia. And in this final climatic test, he says to Jesus, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. But remember from Jesus' baptism that he would still have the words from Psalm 2 ringing in his ears, this is my son. And Psalm 2 held a promise to God's son that all he had to do was to ask and God would make the nations his. His enemies would be his footstool. He would rule over the nations. These have all been promised to him, to Jesus at his baptism. So what's the temptation here? All the kingdoms of the world properly belong to Jesus if he just asks. Isn't he just being invited to take what's rightfully his anyway? The temptation is in how the promise will be fulfilled. Jesus knows the plan of his father, and that means that his inheritance lies on the other side of the cross. The devil tempts Jesus with a shortcut. He holds out the promise of power and glory without the suffering. You don't need to submit to your father and go through the pain and the shame of the cross. I can give you the glory now. He's tempting him with the benefits, but without the need to obey the one who promised them. But for the third time, Jesus decisively rejects Satan, again with words of scripture from Deuteronomy 6. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan! For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The cross is central to Jesus' mission and ministry. If he skipped it and went straight for the power and the glory, that would be a rejection of the plan that he made with the Father before the creation of the world. But Jesus hasn't come for the glory, he's been bathed in glory from all eternity. Jesus has come because he loves his Father. He doesn't see obedience as a dreary, joyless experience. He delights in obedience. And so he's come to do what his Father has invited him to do. He has come to save his people from their sins. And that means going to the cross. The devil leaves Jesus at this point, But the third test follows Jesus throughout his ministry. The temptation to avoid bearing the weight of sin and guilt and the shame of the world must have been overwhelming. Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, tried to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. He was so anxious about it, he sweated drops of blood. Even on the cross, as he died for their sins, the crowd shouted at him, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And he's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Jesus was tempted. Satan didn't win. Jesus didn't sin. Jesus' determination to do his Father's will and save his people from their sins holds him fast in the face of even the greatest temptation. And because of that, Matthew ends on another high mountain with Jesus saying, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Because he went through the cross, all authority has been given to Jesus. If testing reveals character... What does this testing reveal about the Son of God? It reveals he's the one who does what we can't. He lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He refuses to put God to the test. He serves and worships God alone. And because he does what we can't, he is the only one qualified to save us. Finally, now that we've seen that this temptation was unique to Jesus, we also need to see what difference it makes to our lives as Christians today. First, if Jesus was the true Israelite and the true human, then this is what all God's people should look like. It means that struggling with temptation is a normal part of being a Christian. Just because you face temptation doesn't mean you're outside of God's family, In fact, when you become a Christian, the struggles increase. It's a daily fight against temptation. Things don't suddenly get easier, they get harder, because now there's a whole heap of things that you used to do that are no longer right for someone who follows Jesus. Think of the life of a salmon. Their purpose in life is to get up to the breeding waters, and so they spend their lives swimming upstream, battling against the currents, As a salmon, if the going is easy and the river is flowing with you, helping you swim along, you're going the wrong way. And once they make it up one section of rapids and waterfalls, there's another and another and another until they reach their goal. Once they've passed one trial, it's not easy swimming from then on. They cannot rest on their past effort, but they continue until they reach their goal. In the same way, the temptations that we face serve to remind us of our walk of sanctification, of our need for Jesus as we put to death the behaviours that we were previously a slave to. God's expectation is that we do get rid of these behaviours. You stop living that way and you stand firm against temptation. And Jesus shows how to do that. He uses God's word as his weapon to defeat Satan and resist temptation. And what do those words say? They tell us to hunger for God's word more than we hunger for bread. They tell us to trust God in our struggles rather than put him to test through doubt and disobedience. They tell us to serve and worship God alone. If you're honest with yourself, you'll know that it is impossible to do on your own. And you feel the frustration of giving in to temptation again and again and again. At least I hope that you feel that frustration. If you don't grieve your sin, if you don't hate the fact that you've fallen again, I'm not sure you're even a Christian. We all trip. We all falter. But he lifts us up. We find ourselves down in the valley, but he lifts us up. We get down, he lifts us up. We get down, he lifts us up. But if you feel that heartache every time you realize you've done it again, then this passage is cause for rejoicing and for hope. We can rejoice because even though our sin has disqualified us from coming to God, being in his glorious presence being part of his people and his family, that is exactly the sort of people Jesus came to save. And he didn't fail. He didn't give in to temptation. He passed the test. Some say that Jesus' temptations don't compare to ours. He was only tempted three times, but we face hundreds of temptations each week. First, As we saw earlier, Jesus' third temptation wasn't just a five-minute conversation with the devil. Jesus carried that temptation all the way until he completed his mission on the cross. And secondly, none of us know the full force of the temptation that Jesus faced. Imagine for a minute that you were in a contest for a million dollars. All you have to do is survive 12 rounds in the ring with Muhammad Ali in his prime. If it was me, I think I'd get knocked out in the first 10 seconds. If that happened, do you really think that I could say that I experienced the full sting of the Ali punch? Once I was flat on the mat, I would no longer be feeling his glove on my face. But Jesus did not go down. He stood firm through all that Satan could throw at him. He went all the way to the cross, to bear the punishment for our sin. And now Jesus supplies the means for resisting temptation. We're not up to the task on our own, and that's why we need Jesus in the first place. And so now, the same spirit that anointed Jesus for his ministry and powered his obedience now dwells in us. He turns our hearts to desire God's word, He helps us persevere through struggles without testing God. He helps us serve and worship God alone. Any growth that we make in those areas comes entirely from the Spirit working in us. And finally, when we fail, when we fail, we must remember that we have a high priest who knows what it is to be tempted right up to the limits of human endurance, who was without sin, who can help us stand firm in our temptations. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect tempted as we are, yet Without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our sin is no longer a reason to be cast out of the family of God. You don't need to be afraid that if you fail, you'll be disowned because Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness. Everything that needs to be done has been done. And so we can be welcomed into the family of God. And so our failures are not a reason to fear or to flee. They're an opportunity to come closer to Jesus, who is sympathetic and merciful and gracious. He didn't cave when he was pushed to the limit of human endurance and tested by the devil, He didn't cave when he hung on the cross bearing our sin with people challenging him to save himself. So he won't cave on you now. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that we have studied today. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he was able to stand up to the temptation set before him. That he depended upon your good word, that he did not seek self indulgences, but endured to complete the mission that you set before him. We thank you that he completed his mission, that he was able to rescue us from sin and death, that we were rescued from a lie, rescued to a life in eternity with you, a life that was unachievable on our own. We thank you, Father, for giving us your Holy Spirit, that we might stand firm against the temptations of the world, that we will have the strength to obey you. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, that he is our high priest that is with you, interceding for us. Lord, we look forward to the day when our sanctification will be complete, where we will stand before you in your presence and worship you in full joy. In his name. Amen.